Hi, how are you? It's good to be here. Are you awake? It's good to see a few extra folks out on a Saturday night. So should remind you, next Saturday night, really special things happening. Do you know what's happening next Saturday night? Dinner begins. Awesome. Yes. So uh, come early. Uh, the details will be out on the website. I think it's 4.30, something like that, maybe 4.15. Come, have dinner, and uh, bring a friend along, and then stay for the evening service. It's great. Good to be back with you. I've been away a couple weeks. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Joshua got me sick so that he could preach. At least that's the story I'm telling. Uh, I'm convinced of it. He gave me some kind of a bug. Uh, Friday, just don't know how that day was. I'm like, I'm not going to make it through this weekend. So thankfully, he was preaching. And then last weekend, uh, I had the privilege with book to be up at Praxis Church in Kelowna and to visit. So most of you will know that we're helping a new church up in Kelowna get uh, started. And if you don't know that, I'm just telling you that right now. Uh, Josh and Rebecca Duell were part of our church finding residency program last year. They moved up to Kelowna a, a year ago in January, did a bunch of pre-launch gathering stuff and launched public services in September. So they're about eight months into this thing. And this last weekend, there were 400 people showing up uh, at this church. So yeah, <laughs> praise God for that. Uh, continue to pray for them. Uh, probably one of the biggest challenges in front of them is uh, we have a little building there that was a former church building that's being used as a daycare, standing empty. They could rent it on the weekends. Uh, but it's way too tiny for a church of this size. And properties and lands and all those big question marks uh, are massive for a new church plant. They eventually are going to need a home. And so would you pray for them that, uh, honestly, would you pray that God would provide a miracle uh, in opening up an, a location for them for the long haul uh, they need a place for the next 20 years to be able to grow into that. Uh, so would you pray into that? So, hey, it's great to be together. Uh, you will need your Bibles. We are going to be in Corinthians 15. It's the longest text dealing with the resurrection. And I'll just tell you right up front that this is just a meat and potatoes type of a message. It's an Easter message. It's a gospel message. I think that's why you come on Easter weekend. Uh, so for some of you, it's going to be a reminder. And maybe for others of you, it's the uh, first time that you will have, with clarity, heard uh, the message like this. And I've been hoping and praying, knowing that every time we gather... Uh, that there are people who walk into a room like this and you're like, you know what, in advance, maybe months in advance, maybe days in advance, maybe weeks in advance, you have this thing stirring in your heart and you're like, something has got to change in my life. Something has to just be turned around because the way my life is going right now, it is not satisfying, it is not good, and I'm hoping and praying that this weekend that the message of this text will take root in your heart, uh, that you can understand the fact that God delights in new beginnings. And that's really what Easter is all about. And as we talk about that new beginning, uh, that he would seal that into your heart. So I want to pray for us, and then we will open 1 Corinthians. We'll dive in. So Jesus, uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you, by your presence, would work in our hearts and our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room, and I know that many of them have walked with you for many years. And I pray, Father, the joy of the Holy Spirit in their daily life, uh, that they would be walking in newness of power that you promise us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, that daily it would be a joy in their friendships and in their relationships and the places where they go to work and school and play, and that our lives would be honoring to you. Uh, but Lord, I also know that uh, in the seasons of life, there are times where we are up against the wall and life is not going well, and we so desperately need to start over. We need a new beginning. We need freedom in some area of our life. And so Lord, you know as well the men and women in this room tonight that you have already been stirring in their heart, Lord. They, they even now in this moment know who they are by your spirit, the tug on their heart that things need to change in their life. It can't go on like it is. And so Lord, I pray that tonight would be a night of change for them. Tonight would be a night of decision for them and that all of us would be able to re-anchor ourselves in uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Easter, without question, is the pinnacle of the Christian year. It's why you're here, right? Uh, It's why around the world uh, on this weekend, it is the largest attended service in churches around the world. Uh, So people who regularly go to church, of course, they show up. People who come once or twice a month will make sure that they're in service on an Easter weekend. And then a lot of people who only go to church out of a tradition, maybe at Christmas and Easter, will also join. And so for any of those reasons, if you're here with us, welcome here this Day is the most important day on the Christian calendar. Easter matters because it is the central message not only of the Bible, but the central message of the church. And that's this simple message that God is in the business of setting things right between sinful humanity and a holy God. And that God would take the responsibility to do something for you and me that we cannot do for ourselves. That he would pay the penalty for our sin and that God would conquer once and for all sin and death and the grave. Or is that famous saying from C.S. Lewis that you've heard us quote before, but it's one of his famous ones, that God is not so much in the business of making bad people good, although he does that. His business is rather to make dead people live. That's the business that God is in. And so Easter, rightly understood, declares that dead people can live. Dead people can live. And I I said it intentionally in the plural, people. Because yes and amen, this starts with Jesus' resurrection, but the implications of Jesus' resurrection is that we too can walk in newness of life and that death in all of its forms has been conquered and that the penalty of sin and the power of sin has been conquered. So the summary statement of Easter might be this. We have a secure hope for the future, and we have a new power for today. So if you take nothing else with you, try to remember those thoughts. Easter tells us these two things, that we have a secure hope for the future. Despite what's going on in our lives today, there is an absolute rock-solid secure hope for the future. But secondly that there is a new power for today. Easter changes everything. So I have a friend who lives up in the Okanagan who is not supposed to be alive today. Uh, He, as a young business leader in northern Alberta, was very successful. He was a rising star in his field. Everything in his world was up and to the right, as they would say it. He was a Christian. He was active in his church. He was a husband, and he was a father to two young boys. And everything was going well in his world. And he would say that his faith was real to him, but that his faith was not necessarily the driving force in his life. Until one night on an icy winter road in northern Alberta, a drunk driver careens out of control and into their family vehicle with the four of them, and all of them were injured, but he most profoundly. And left in the hospital in a coma, sure to die, and they called all of the family in to say their goodbyes, and as he shares his story, he's laying there in this comatose state, and he is hearing everything the doctor is saying, but he's not able to move a finger or twitch, he's not able to respond, he can hear the conversation inside his head, and he cannot respond, and the doctor is saying he will not live, and he may live, but he, if he does live, will wish he didn't. 
Because at the very worst, he will remain in this vegetative state, this comatose state for the rest of his days. And at the very best, he might gain a little bit of consciousness, but he will never walk again. He will never talk again. He will never have any semblance of normalcy. So he will wish he would have died. And he's hearing all of this. And to make a long story short, which you already know, obviously, he defied all the odds. And after over a year in the hospital and multiple, multiple surgeries and rehabilitation, he walked out of that hospital and over the coming years, he has made a miraculous recovery. And as he shares his story, the first time I heard him share the story, this line jumped out at me in his testimony. He said this, when you come back from the grave, it changes everything. When you come back from the grave, it changes everything. And he was lit up in his faith. And ever since, for the last, it's been now about 40 years since that tragic car accident, he has lived under the glory of Christ and to usher as many people as he possibly can in witness and testimony into the kingdom of God. This is the message of Easter, that when you come back from the grave, it changes everything. And I don't know what brought you here today. Uh, A friend could have invited you. Maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend dragged you here. Welcome here. Uh, Maybe visiting family and part of the tradition is to go to an Easter service. Uh, But whatever the reason that you believe you came here for a human reason, I believe ultimately is the Heavenly Father that gathers us together because he wanted us to hear yet again this message, each one of you individually, one-on-one, that God loves you and that God is calling you out of death and into life. And, and for some, in fact, probably many across our congregations this weekend need to know that there can be a new beginning. There can be a change in your life. There can be hope for a better tomorrow. That things need to change and they can change. And the message of Easter is central to the message of the church because the power of the resurrected Christ is given to his people to start over. Because Christ was raised, we're told in Romans 6, because Christ was raised, we too can walk in newness of life. So Paul says this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It is why the celebration of water baptism is still so central to the life of the church. Because in that exercise of water baptism, we are declaring our new life in Christ. We are saying, I have made a conscious choice. I have made a decision. I was born dead in my trespasses and sins, my rebellion, my walking away from the Lord. Whatever the story is, they're all different and yet they're all the same. There came a moment in time where I heard the claims of Christ, where I believed it, where I received it. I've turned my back now on the old way of life. The old man, the old woman is dead and I'm walking in new life and I want to picture it. I want to get buried with Jesus. And so we push you under the water and we hold you down until the bubbles are done to make sure you're dead. And then you get raised to new life in Jesus Christ. It is why water baptism is such a celebration because it's a story of what has happened in your heart. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest text on the resurrection. And Paul opens with these words, the first six verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance 
What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. Paul says, let me remind you of the gospel. At the end of this long book, this book written to his most troublesome church, a messed up church in so many ways. And he ends this letter by going, as I wrap it up, I want to remind you, I want to take you back to the basic ABCs of Christianity. I want to remind you of the gospel. And that word gospel simply means good news. The gospel is the good news that God through Jesus Christ has reconciled the world to himself and he is in the business of restoring our lives. That's what the gospel is in a nutshell. And you've heard us, if you've been here any length of time, saying if you know these four words, a four-part play, the story of creation, the story of the fall, the story of redemption, and the story of restoration, that these are the four parts to the gospel message. You can't just look at the life of Christ. It only makes sense if you put it into the larger story. That God created a perfect world. We do not believe in evolution. We do not believe in, in that we're a cosmic accident. We believe we are here by design. That there was a designer, there was a creator behind all that happened. And, and science continues to affirm this, this intricate design to the human being. That we were created for perfect fellowship with one another and with God. Amen. But that sin entered. Sin entered when our father Adam chose to rebel and shake his fist at God and say, I think I know better than you, God. And then the rest of the story from Genesis 3 onward is the story of redemption. The story of God trying to buy us back to himself. And it is completed in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, who is identified as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You see, up until Jesus, the only way your sins were taken away was if you brought a blood sacrifice to the temple. If a goat, a, a bull, a ram, a, a sacrificial lamb's blood was shed to pay the penalty for your sin. But in Jesus, John the Baptist identifies him and says, look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Once and for all, signed, sealed, and delivered. No more blood sacrifices. Because this one perfect spotless lamb is sacrificed. So the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. You want the gospel in just three words? There it is, right there. God saves sinners sinners. We don't save ourselves. God does it. And so on Easter, the curtain is going up now on act four. As the morning sun rises on that first day of a new week, God's plan now for restoration, creation, fall, redemption. Now restoration has begun and it is unfolding before our eyes. As Jesus walks out of the tomb fully alive, having paid the price for our sin, Having endured the darkness and the blackness and the wrath of God that is poured out on that dark Friday afternoon that we just remembered yesterday, not for his sin, but for our sin. And then he bursts onto the scene as a ruling and reigning king, and he holds the keys of death and the grave, and it is a brand new day. Restoration has begun. Restoration is now unfolding in front of our eyes, and so it's what we look for. It's what we watch for. It's what we pray for. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And that every time we see somebody saying yes to God in any area of their life, we're like, hallelujah. Because the restoration of God is breaking in on their life. The simplest yes to the most major yes 
And you might be asking, well, what changed? Really, what changed? Well, two things specifically. Number one is that death and the grave no longer have the final say over our lives. Because Jesus Christ walked away fully alive from that tomb, death is defeated. Uh, Theologians call it the death of death. Death has died. And so we have a secure future hope. Death and the grave no longer hold fear for the child of God. Secondly, the penalty and the power of sin is paid for and broken. So in Christ, guilty sinners are forgiven. That's true. Guilty sinners are forgiven, but powerless sinners are also set free. They are given a new power for today. Now, here's the problem. Here's your problem. Don't you love it when people tell you, here's your problem? Here's most of our problems. Most of believers, at least in the North American context today, hear the hope of the resurrection, and they hear it only as a future event. That's all they hear. I know that Jesus is my Savior and Lord, and so one day, after I die, I'll be raised again to new life, either when Christ returns or if he, if he returns before I die, then I'll just be transformed. And so it's a, a future hope. And particularly if you're young, you think it's irrelevant. It's, it's more relevant to uh, the older people in the room, to your grandparents, to old people who are statistically closer to the grave, right? They should be worried about this. But you young people aren't worried about it, so we pass it off. Yes, I have hope for eternity. And while that is true, it is only one part of the story. Because yes, I do indeed have a future secure hope, but perhaps more practically, I also have power to live today. Resurrection power to live today. In all areas of death. So Jesus said, the thief, speaking of Satan, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's his target on your life. If there's anything beautiful in your life, he wants it. He wants to kill it. He wants to steal it away. He wants to destroy it. So it could be your marriage. It could be your kids. It could be your work life. It could be finances. It could be health. If there's anything that you rejoice in, the enemy hates it. He wants to kill it. And Jesus said, but I've come that you might have life abundant. Life abundant, the exact opposite. And so on Good Friday, we celebrate that Act 3 is finished. Redemption was done. It is complete. Feta complete. And Act 4 on Sunday morning begins. God is now reconciling the world to himself. He is restoring and he is renewing. So in other words, friends, we are living in the days of restoration. Today. So the four parts of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, they're done, finished. We are living in act four. We are living in the days of God's restoration and restoring and renewing. And so Paul goes on and he says this, look, if Jesus was not raised, then all of our preaching and all of our Christian living is in vain. It's a waste of time. Drop down to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ wasn't raised, if the resurrection is not true, and so the fact of the resurrection, the fact that Jesus Christ conquered the grave is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Did you know that other major religions, there is a tomb. You can go to the tomb of their founder. The Christian faith is the only faith in the world with an empty tomb. Amen. So Muhammad, the Muslim, can go visit. You can't because only Muslims can go in. But the Muslim can go visit Muhammad's tomb in Saudi Arabia, in the, in the city of Medina. The Jew can go visit Abraham's tomb in Hebron. And the Buddhist can go visit, well, one of many sites, because the Buddha was cremated, and originally his cremated ashes were divided in eight parts and sent out to eight particular shrines. And then over the years, they were divided again and again and again and again. And so now there are literally dozens of sites that purport to be the burial site of the Buddha. So you can go to the tomb, and yet the early church focus was that Christ was raised, the tomb is empty, and a new day has come. Now, this is fascinating. This is really interesting, because you see this symbol here that we get used to is the key symbol of North American Christianity and worldwide Christianity. What is Christianity? It's the cross. Do you know how late in Christian art the cross shows up? The early church was fascinated by the empty tomb, it was the empty tomb that was front and center. In fact, the first cross that showed up in Christian art wasn't until the fourth century. So Kenneth Clark was a, a British art historian and he studied religious art. And in his book, Civilization, he said this, we have grown so used to the idea that the crucifixion is the supreme symbol of Christianity that it's a shock to realize how late in the history of Christian art its power was recognized. The cross its power. In the first art of Christianity, it hardly appears. And the earliest example on the doors of Santa Sabima in Rome is stuck away in a corner, almost out of sight. And you say, well, then what predominated the art? The art in those first four centuries was predominated by the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The powerful ruling and reigning Jesus, the fact that the tomb was alive. So a cross is really easy to put up on the building. I don't know how we'd put an empty tomb up on top of the building. But probably that would be the better symbol for the Christian faith, that the tomb is empty. And so much is written on this topic. So you might be here today going, I don't know if I believe in the resurrection. Well, you, you would not be alone. Throughout the centuries, many people have tried to undo the, revel, uh, the, the resurrection, but there is so much historical fact, so much evidence. It is so well documented and attested to. Now, it, we could do an entire series of messages. Don't have time for that. But the changes that came because of the resurrection, two or three of them, let me just tell you this. Number one, those fearful disciples who ran away and hid suddenly become powerful preachers of the gospel. What changed between the crucifixion and the burial of Christ and the powerful preaching, so much so that tradition tells us they held on to that testimony and that 11 of the 12 of them were martyred for that testimony. They held on to it so boldly that this Jesus has been raised from the tomb. What other fact could make that happen unless it was true? They literally turned the world upside down. And Paul reminds us, we read it here, that there were over 500 witnesses. 
So Paul wrote this letter in the first century. The majority of those 500 witnesses were still alive. He says it. And if they had not seen Jesus risen, certainly they could have rebutted that. So there are tons of books and podcasts and articles. If you need some information on the veracity of the resurrection, just talk to any of our pastors. We can hook you up with some good resources. But the fact, Paul says here, is that he was raised and the tomb is empty. And then he goes on to say this in verse 20. The fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ has been raised, and he is the first fruits of those who will be raised. The tomb is empty, it is indeed. And that interesting word there, it's used twice in verse 20 and 23. And it might not mean much to the North American ear, but it was loaded to the Jewish ear in the first century. He is called the first fruits. The first fruits. What does that mean? Might not mean anything to you, but it meant a lot to the Jews. In fact, that week, Passover week, seven days of celebration, the week that Jesus was crucified ends with the eighth day, the Sunday, the first day of the next week, was a festival day. It was a feast day, and it just so happened to be the feast of first fruits. And you go, what's that? Well, the Jews had a number of festivals that they celebrated throughout the year. And the Feast of First Fruits was exactly what it sounds like the celebration of the first of the harvest that was going to come in. So, the first of the grapes, the first of the wheat, the first of the barley, the very first of the crops was being brought in. And six weeks later, they would have another massive celebration at the end of the harvest. So, they've gone through four to six weeks of the cycles of harvesting. And they would celebrate again, but this is the first fruits, a thank to God for the very first of the harvest of the grapes and the weed. And where this promise is that where this came from, there is more on the way God is going to provide for us. And so interesting that on the first day of a new week that just so happened to be the feast of first fruits, Jesus walks away from the tomb for the first time in human history. A man walks out of the tomb alive, never to die again. Now, yes, there were previous resurrections. Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. He raised the widow at Nain's son from the tomb. But they died again. Jesus did not die again. And the promise is there is more to come. He's the first fruits, more to follow. That's you and me. Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That is our future hope. Now, from there on out, it gets really exciting. If you're willing to engage it, it gets really exciting. Verse 24 to 28. For he must reign. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 24, rather, let me go back one. Then comes the end. So you want to know about end times? You want to know about the return of Christ? You want to know when the world's going to come to an end and everything's going to be made fresh and new again? Right here he tells us. The end comes when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. It's a bit of a mouthful. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now look, it's a little bit of a convoluted statement, but basically what it's saying is God has put Jesus in charge. He is ruling and reigning and he is going to rule and reign. He will continue to rule and reign until everything is in submission under the reign of Jesus. And then he takes the whole enchilada and he hands it back to the father and he goes, now it's yours, dad. I was ruling and reigning until everything is brought under my rule and reign, signed, sealed, and finished, delivered. Now, Father, you're the one who is ultimately going to rule for eternity. It's yours. It's done. And it tells us that the resurrection was not just a history lesson, but that it started a whole new era of God's restorative work that we are living in the midst of. And there are so many promises. So let me just throw up a couple. Habakkuk 2. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I just heard an old preacher the other night. He said, I don't deal in things that I don't understand. I deal in promises. This is the promise of God, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So from Russia to China to Canada to Uganda to Malaysia to Paraguay to Panama to you name all of the 240 some odd nation states, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, he says. And then in Philippians, which we studied just a couple months ago, chapter two, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then listen what happened. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the great hope that we have as followers of Jesus is that regardless of how dark the world might appear to be coming around us, we know how the story ends and we serve a ruling and reigning king. A ruling and reigning king. So our next study in two weeks time, we're starting into a new book, First Peter. And First Peter has so much to say about living as exiles, living as sojourners, living in dark times, and yet living as children of the promise, that you are being built together into a heavenly kingdom, that you will stand out as salt and light, as a city on the hill. And regardless of how dark it gets, you will have the strength to endure. And Easter Sunday... More than any other day or week or month of the year, Easter Sunday is the beginning of a whole new era in God's redemptive plan. On that final act, act three, as it comes to a close, when Jesus cries out, it is finished, what he said is exactly what he meant, that everything that needed to be done was done. It was finished. The penalty for our sin has now been paid for. The wrath of God toward the rebellion of humanity has been fully satisfied in those black hours. The door is flung wide open for us to be reconciled to God and to one another. And what happens next is then amazing that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father where he sits today ruling and reigning and act for restoration has begun and we long for it. It is our secure future hope. Let me just read you a text that this is your longing. For those of you who are older, you will know what you're longing. 
For we know that this tent of our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this tent, talking about your body, this tent we groan. I, I, I often like to say, you know what, if you just be quiet a little bit and listen to the guy next to you, you can hear him groaning. You can hear our bodies, they're just groaning. They long, they long to be clothed. To put on a heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, this body, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. And the question is this, do we get it? Do we understand it? Have we seen it? Do we embrace it? Because if we do, it absolutely changes everything and no more practically than on the day-to-day level of our lives. Because it is not just a future hope, but it is a present victory and power over sin and death that is ours. That we can start over. That God is in the business of making new things, including us. Ephesians 1, another long prayer of Paul's. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now listen, in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Listen to this. His power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. What that prayer says to us is the question of the resurrection is that this power is given to us. That if Jesus is indeed seated next to the Father in the throne of the universe, if he is indeed ruling, reigning all things under his loving leadership, and if he has indeed offered us the same resurrection power for living our daily lives, then what should our lives today look like? So go back to where we started at the beginning, Romans 6, that we too might walk in newness of life. And he goes on to say this, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. One of my favorite passages, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. If you are in Christ, you're a dead man walking. You're a dead woman walking. Your life has been laid down. Your life is dead and buried in Christ and it is picked up to walk in newness of life, in joy and in victory. Power that is available. So some of you came here today knowing whatever is going on in your life that you needed a new beginning. Some of you do desperately need a new beginning. Honestly, you do. I know that there's still some of you that are dealing with the relational aftershocks of COVID that we allowed as human beings something as stupid as a little virus to come between our most cherished relationships. Some of you need a new start in some of those relationships. It might be an addiction that is holding you. It might be a thought pattern that you somehow can't get rid of. It might be a broken relationship that you're in. But regardless of what it is, every one of us needs to know that God never tires of our new beginnings. 
and that he is always listening for our next yes. And so Paul, in writing about the resurrection, starts off by saying at the end of this book, let me remind you of the gospel. So the letter to the Corinthians was written to Paul's most troublesome church. They were a wreck. The church was divided. There were lawsuits between brothers in the church. There was weird sexual immorality going on. There was confusion around spiritual gifts. They were a mess. And he writes this long letter to address a lot of that mess. But as he wraps it up at the end, he goes, now look, as I wrap it up, I need to remind you of what's of first importance. All these things we've talked about, yeah, how you handle your differences and your disagreements and all the issues that we've done in these first 14, 15 chapters, I need to remind you of the gospel, the good news that God through Jesus Christ is restoring the world. And then he ends with this verse at the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore... My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's an interesting way to end this passage on the resurrection. And N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, says this, how might we expect Paul to finish this chapter? By saying, therefore, since you have such a great hope... Sit back and relax because you know God's got a great future in store for you. No, instead, he says, Therefore, my beloved ones, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is really personal for me. This, this verse, you may or may not know this, this is my life verse. The night my dad died, I'm a 15-year-old kid, and I'm in a living room with a whole bunch of people from our church that were there late into that night. And this little old woman, a retired pastor's wife named Mrs. Hurlbert, I can still remember it as clear as today, she takes me aside, and for whatever reason, I don't know, she gave me this verse of scripture. She looked me in the eye as a 15-year-old kid, and she said, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that verse took root in my heart, and I can tell you it is what has carried us in our years of ministry. Because there's a lot of discouragement in life. There's a lot of discouragement even in the church. There's a lot of mess. There's a lot of problems. It's what pastors deal with. We deal with the highest of highs and joys in people's life and the crappiest of the crap in people's lives. And so you need the encouragement to say, you know what? Keep on going because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because God is in the business of making lives new again. God is in the business of new beginnings and new starts. And if ever we need that challenge, friends, it's today. Because honestly, we know this, stormy days are ahead of us. And if you're not aware of that, then you need to just open up your eyes and look at what's happening in the culture around us. Christianity in North America is not going to look like what Christianity in North America has looked like for the last 100 years. Guaranteed, it is not. We are now going to be on the margins and what a joyful place for us to be because now more than ever, we will shine like lights in a dark culture. We will be like a city on a hill where people will go, what is wrong with those weird people? What is it about their life? Why do they have so much joy? How are they so resilient? Why do they keep on getting up every day with joy? Why do their marriages look like they do? Why do their kids look like they do? What is wrong with those people? What an opportunity we are going to have. Easter is the most important day in the Christian calendar. 
Because rightly understood, it says dead people can live. And the Holy Spirit calls us to turn away from our dead way of living and turn to new life in Christ. Yes, we have a secure hope for the future and we have a new power for today. So the only question is this, has it changed me? Has it changed you? Have I seen and heard and understood what Jesus did for me in his life and his death? And have I seen my need and have I embraced the gift he offers? And and now more importantly, am I walking in joy and freedom and the power that he gives me? Creation, fall, redemption, and now restoration begun on Easter Sunday morning. And the question is, will we join in what God is doing? And so maybe you're here today and you need to start again. Maybe you need for the very first time to step into new life. Maybe Easter 2022 is the year you say, that's the day I committed my life to Jesus Christ. That's the day I got saved. That's the day that I said yes to the promises of God. And for others of you, it may simply be a renewal and there's a mess in your life and you're like, I just need to get this thing fixed. And the question is most simply put this, will I say yes to God's plan for my life? That's most simple. Will I say yes to his plans? Will I step away from my old dead way of living and into a new life in Christ? In other words, will I live Easter? Will I live Easter? So some of you came today knowing in the back of your mind, maybe even before you drove to church tonight, that something has to change in your life. That the things that are in your life and the way things are headed is not good and that you need a new start, a new beginning and a new power. And I'm gonna ask you tonight in just a moment to pray with me a prayer of surrender. We're all gonna pray it together, a resurrection prayer, a confession of faith prayer, but it's a prayer that basically says, I need a new start. And you could say it so simply, just a simple prayer of faith in the privacy of your own home. Lord God, I say yes to your will. I I believe what you said and I receive it. Uh, I make it my own. I I enter into new life, yes. Amen. But I want to tonight use one of the oldest confessions in the church, the Apostles' Creed, which Christians around the world recount from week in and week out. And I want us to pray it out loud together. And rather than just reciting ancient words, thousands of years old, that we would say them out as a profession of faith. So I'm going to ask, would you stand together with me? And I'm going to lead you through this prayer. And I would ask you that I'll read a part, you read a part back. We'll all read together. And that you would make these words your profession of faith. And maybe for some of you, it's the very first time where you're going, you know what? I am going to articulate what I believe to be true. I'm going to say yes to the Lord. So number one, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Or to put it in the simplest terms, I believe and I receive what Jesus did for me. In other words, I say yes. I say yes to your will and your ways over my life. And it's been my prayer throughout this week 
that there would be many people that today would be a day of decision, for some that it would be a day of salvation, a first turning to Christ, and for others it would be a day of starting over because you're sick and tired of the brokenness and the mess that's in your life, and you want to walk away from an empty tomb with the power that God gives you, a day of new life, where you consciously put the old behind you and embrace the new. Secure hope for the future, and power for today. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray for these men and women. This message is the fundamental, basic, meat and potatoes message of the church, the gospel. Let me remind you of things of first importance that were handed on to me, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And Lord, in that message, we have the story of you restoring us back to right relationship. And so, Lord, I pray that the men and women, boys and girls in this room would understand it, that they would embrace it. And Lord, that it wouldn't just be a future hope someday pie in the sky and a sweet by and by, but that it would be a daily reality that as I crawl out of bed every morning, I can walk in the power of the resurrection. I can walk in newness of life. And regardless of what's going on in the world around me, I know that you're ruling and reigning, not only in the universe, but you're ruling and reigning in my life. May that be true for every man, every woman, every boy and girl in this room. I ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.